They've surrendered their sovereignty to the people in Brussels, and the people in Brussels are leading us into a global catastrophe. Today I sit down with war correspondent and investigative reporter Michael Yan. Societies from Europe to Asia to the Americas have been devastated by draconian COVID policies, with many now suffering from man-made food shortages, an energy crisis, massive inflation, and war. The pipeline is now draining out, fertilizers not being produced. As you know, China and other countries like India, Malaysia, Indonesia are hoarding food. The world has crossed a Rubicon, Michael Yan argues, with pandemic, war, and famine, what Yan calls the triangle of death, leading to potentially disastrous consequences for America. I cannot convey clearly enough how serious this is. These famines that are clearly building are biblical. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Jan Jakelek. Before we get started, I have a message from the sponsor of this podcast. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years, and it's eating away at your savings. Interest rates are also on the rise. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect the value of your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k, and they make it easy. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Michael Yan, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Yan, it's great to be back. I've been wanting to come back on your show for a long time. You've left me out in Siberia. <laughs> well, you've been actually all over the place. You know, it's been kind of hard to get a hold of you. You know, you've been traveling to like Morocco, Darien Gap. You're now in Netherlands. That's what we're going to start with. Um, you know, we met, of course, in Hong Kong. I like to you know, remind our viewers, you know, you kind of showed me the ropes of what was happening amidst the protests and how not to get in some serious trouble in the midst of it. So you've been doing all this traveling. Your, focusing has, your focus has been on global security, okay? On global security, trying to understand what is happening in the world because there does seem to be a very significant shift, especially with the pandemic. And now we're seeing food security become a very serious issue. And you're in Netherlands right now. So what are you seeing? Netherlands right now is about to go into winter. Their energy prices are going through the roof. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, most of the people don't see the famine coming. Uh, some do. Uh, and so as we can see, Germany is about to collapse under the burden of, uh, lack of energy, not just energy prices. And so the, the farmers are being, uh, destroyed and, uh, and, and Netherlands is being brought to heel under the, under the globalists. Some are resisting. Before we continue, I just have a message from one of our sponsors. For all of you with retirement savings accounts, America's federal debt is now at $30 trillion, and our policies during this pandemic are causing inflation to soar to multi-decade highs. A lot of folks are rightly worried about what this will mean for their retirement savings. You can protect your life savings with the only thing that has always held value, physical gold and silver. To get started, you can call GoldCo at 855 973 0470 for a free wealth protection kit. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They guarantee highest price buybacks, and they always offer free shipping. Ask how you can even get $10,000 or more in free silver. Don't wait. Call 855-973-0470. Now that's 855-973-0470. So basically you're saying that the Dutch government has a globalist bent. Oh, big time. I mean, I wouldn't say they just have a globalist bent. They are globalist. Are you saying that the um, Netherlands government basically uh, sort of agrees ideolo ideologically with the World Economic Forum people? Is that how it works? 
Absolutely. Mark Rutte, the uh, prime minister, you can see Klaus Schwab. They call it WEF here, World Economic Forum. You can see Klaus Schwab going, where do we find a prime minister like Mark Rutte? You know, and, and Mark is like, yeah, you know, it's probably making Trudeau quite jealous. The World Economic Forum has nurtured this country. Of course, Brussels is right next door. Belgium is on the border, right? The EU is completely captured. And so things are, are really governed here by bureaucrats, unnamed. We don't even know who they are. They're probably down in Davos, down in Switzerland. So it's clear that the, the, the World Economic Forum is, has a massive influence in Canada, United States, um, all over, including Japan, uh, name it. And especially here in Belgium and, and uh, in Luxembourg, they've taken Luxembourg. Luxembourg's gone with the wind. Uh, what a nice banking place to have as well. The farmers own about 62% of the land in Netherlands, but they're the that this is the second largest food exporter in the world, despite being only less than 18 million people, right? And the farmers are extraordinary. And so they're, they're using excuses of what they call stickstoff here, which is nitrogen, that the nitrogen is causing pollution right next door in Germany, which is on the border. They don't ever bring up the nitrogen. They blame CO2 over there. Across the border, it's CO2. Here, it's nitrogen. They just, you know, the, the globalists just tailor-make their... their uh, they're talking points to, to, to resonate with people. But the bottom line is they're trying to run the farmers out of business by saying that they're polluting the, the environment. And, of course, that means that they're, who's going to make this food? When you take the most efficient farmers in the world, arguably, and you put them out of business uh, because they're polluting, who's going to do it? The Indians, the Chinese? I don't know. Uh, the bottom line is, though, we can see that we're going into an energy crisis that is quite severe. Uh, and uh, an energy crisis, of course, leads to food crisis as well. Uh, as you know, I spend a lot of time down in the Darien Gap between Colombia and, and, uh, and Panama. A great deal of time out with those uh, Indians deep in the jungle, taking two congressmen down there. Uh, Tom Tiffany from Wisconsin, for instance, very courageously went probably 25 miles out in the jungle with me. And, uh, and then, you know, Mexico and whatnot. You see our borders just being overwhelmed. Same is happening here in Europe. Uh, I was just over in Luxembourg, tiny country, and about 50% of the country is now uh, recent migrants, right? Luxembourg is not anything like it was the last time I was there. In fact, Europe in general is not. I've lived six years in Europe, mostly Germany and Poland. And you can see, for instance, Germany is, is really going downhill fast. Uh, they have an energy crisis that is quite severe, and it's been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, of course, you know, you've got Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. For people that don't know what that means, there's two pipelines. Nord Stream means North Stream because the pipeline goes through the, the Baltic Sea and comes down to Germany, right? So Nord Stream 2 has never been opened because Germany won't certify it to open. Nord Stream 1 has been open and running at 100% until recently, until the war came. And uh, excuse me if you see flies here, there's horses everywhere. I'm in farmland. Nord Stream 2... Has never been open. Nord Stream 1 is very vital for, for, for Germany and Europe uh, because that's where a huge amount of the natural gas comes to Germany, right, and, and other parts of Europe. And, and since the war started, Nord Stream 1 was flowing at 100%, and then Putin knocked it down. I mean, I'll, I'll skip some of the details, but he had to flow down to about 22% for, for quite a while. I've been watching it every few days. There's an online website. You can see the flow yourself. Putin had threatened uh, weeks ago that he would shut off Nord Stream 1 and put it down to zero, and which he just did. I was up after midnight watching the flows, and sure enough, he shut it off. And, uh, and so now, this is a big deal. At the current burn rate, even when Nord Stream 1 was at 22%, uh, which it is at 0% as we talk right now, right? Uh, that means that Germany was probably going to run out of energy or of natural gas in about January or February, height of the winter, and Germany's quite cold, as you know. And now this has other huge effects besides just freezing to death. Right now, Germany is setting up warming stations, by the way, in school gymnasiums and whatnot, so that Come wintertime, people will be able to warm up in, in, the, in the gymnasiums and that the German tribes will be able to meet with the new Somali tribes who have come in. Uh, so, I mean, it, it'll be quite interesting. And so, but a huge impact, and we'll get back to food now, uh, of, the, of the natural gas. As you know, natural gas is used to make 
nitrogen-based fertilizers using the Haber-Bosch process. The Haber-Bosch process takes natural gas and converts it using atmospheric air, and it combines those together, and you make ammonia, urea, or ammonium nitrate, and some other things. And this is vital. This process is absolutely vital for the lives of billions of people on Earth. The Haber-Bosch process has only been around for roughly 110 years, uh, and that is one of the things that allowed the human population to just explode. I've published on my locals number, a number of times a map of the fertilizer plants that have either shut down production of nitrogen-based fertilizers uh, or have greatly uh, reduced the amount. Now, the flash to bang on the, on, the, on the food issues is quite long because we're living off of last year's bounty right now, right? And so there was a lot of fertilizer in, and food already in the pipeline, which is now draining, just like Nord Stream 1 just did. And so the pipeline is now draining out. Fertilizer is not being produced anywhere close to what it used to be. As you know, China and other countries like India, Malaysia, Indonesia are hoarding food, uh, which is, I think, quite smart. I mean, for, from their perspective, they may be having riots today in China, uh, un, unconfirmed, but it, it looks like it. Food riots uh, in Chengdu, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But the bottom line is, I would not doubt it if you have actual Germans knocking on your door this year because they're freezing. Now, there is plenty of natural gas. Russia has obviously plenty. Netherlands, where I'm sitting now, there's a place called Groningen, which is not very far from me, about an hour away. They've got all the natural gas they need for Netherlands, and substantial part they could uh, send quite a lot to, to Germany. Uh, and also over in the UK, they've got a lot of natural gas that's not being used. And it's not being used because it's sitting in the ground due to information campaigns by the Greens and the people who sponsor the Greens. So it's just, people are gonna freeze to death this winter. It's very clear. Next year, we're going to start to see profound food shortages, and this will drive that hop. We see right now, going through South America, through Colombia, up through the Darien Gap, where I spend so much time, the flows are dramatically increasing. And as you know, I was down in Darien Gap a few months ago. Darien Gap is that uh, jungle gap between Colombia and Panama. It's very rugged, very dangerous. So the migrants go through that Darien Gap, and, and many drown or fall off what they call the Montaña de la Muerta, the Mountain of Death, or they get lost out there. But they're coming up in massive numbers through Africans and Asians. I see people from Pakistan every day. I'm talking about in Panama, in Central America, right? I see uh, that that flow is dramatically increasing as we see the economies collapse, right? Like last year, I didn't see many Pakistanis. I see a few, a sprinkling. Last year, I didn't see many. I didn't see any Chinese. I heard about Chinese. This year, I see seeing mainland Chinese every day. Mainland Chinese go to Ecuador, and then they go up to Colombia go into the Darien Gap and, and go north and they end up all around the United States. And so we have the same with uh, Indians, Bangladeshis, Somalis, Yemenis, over 140 countries, right? And so this human osmotic pressure that's being created by these food shortages that are coming in a huge way next year sets up South America as a funnel right through Panama. I'm a war correspondent, right? I'm down there because that is a corridor north. And recently when I was down there, Mayorkas came and landed in his Blackhawks. He came with three Blackhawks and he's doubling the size of the camps that we're increasing the flow. Our own government is, is increasing the, 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 the migration flow, like opening the arteries, right? In the past, most of the flows were coming from what we call the Northern Triangle, like Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico. It's not really a triangle. But now, there, many people are coming from uh, huge numbers from Cuba, huge numbers from uh, Haiti. Haiti's just dumping out through there. Venezuela, of course, left wing has collapsed. Colombia has just gone left wing. So now I'm seeing Colombians go through there all the time, every day. Peruvians, like last year, I wasn't seeing any Peruvians. This year, I'm seeing Peruvians down the Darien Gap and I just spent two weeks in Mexico before I came here up on the border at the Rio Grande on the Mexican side and a couple weeks on the Texas side. Peruvians every day. Why are Peruvians coming now? Food. We have problems with the food. The economy's collapsing. As the economies collapse and as the food pressures increase, you'll see Africa and you'll see Asia start and maybe parts of Europe dumping out into South America and then going through the Darien Gap. After you've passed through the Darien Gap and you're on the Panama side, it could take you two weeks to get to Costa Rica last year. 
now you can be up there in 24 hours easily. You'll be unlucky if it takes you three days, right? Because we've increased the flow. It's much smoother. So it's like a pipeline, almost like South Stream, right? So this is a big deal. We're being completely invaded uh, on the southern border. Everybody in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico knows this. And right now <clears throat> here in, 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 in uh, Netherlands, it's very similar. Uh, it's just on different number scale because they're a smaller country. Okay, Michael, you're painting a very, very broad picture here, looking at different parts of the world, different phenomena ha apparently happening in concert. With the way the energy situation is going, it's clear that Germany is in grave danger of collapsing in 2023. Uh, it's actually difficult to imagine on this trajectory, unless something changes, that they won't. And, you know, there's 27 countries in the European Union, and if Germany collapses, the European Union is certainly going to just fall apart. Uh, and keeping in mind that Putin also just cut natural gas to France, right? So, I mean, the, the situation is quite dire. Some countries saw this coming. Poland saw it coming, made adjustments way in advance, started getting more of their energy from Norway, as an example. Polish are hardcore. You know, I lived in Poland two years. I love Poland. And you, they, they're just still real men there. They're not going to just roll over for the, the weaklings in the EU who demand that you open your borders and that you give your, your energy security over to Russia. Poland has a long experience with Russia, and it's very acute. And they also have a long experience with Germans. And so uh, Poland is caught in that middle spot. And so the survivors in Poland, the remnant, are hard people. And so as the European Union tries to push Poland uh, to, into energy dependence and whatnot, Poland's like, no can do. We're getting our energy somewhere else. So Poland has their uh, energy tanks topped off, I think. They might be at 99 or 100% right now. Uh, I think they've got enough for the winter, but still... We have Polish people lined up, apparently, for days. I need to just go back over to Poland. Apparently, Poles are lined up to get coal. You know, coal, Poland's got a lot of coal. And, uh, and, and, um, and so, apparently, and, 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 and forests are being cut down and shipped over to Germany. Germans are raiding the forest. They're hiring private security to guard their forest because everybody's cutting trees down and getting all the wood they can out of the forest. I was just over in Germany checking out... Uh, uh, you know, I went to their equivalent of the Home Depot. It's called OBI, uh, and and went straight to the wood section. And they're like, ah, we can't get any wood. You know, they're they're you know, you have to get it right when it comes in. We don't know when we're going to get any more, and 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 they have to limit the amounts. So because the the the, the Germans who many of the Germans heat their homes with the natural gas, but remember, most Germans don't have fireplaces. They live in cities. They live, many of them live in apartment buildings and that sort of thing. So this is a very serious situation coming in for, you know, the, the, the trees are being cut down to, and the coals being fired up again to keep people warm. How important is natural gas flow to Europe? Natural gas flow to Europe is life and death. In addition to energy uh, for lighting and heating and, and running many the, the factories. I mean, the car factory is unbelievable. I mean, industry in Europe is completely or mostly dependent on, on this. And Germany is shutting off their nuclear power plants and fertilizer. You have to have that natural gas to do the bulk of the production of nitrogen-based fertilizers. This is clearly setting the table for famine. There's this huge focus right now on the Russia-Ukraine war, and then perhaps not surprisingly, but, you know, as, you know, I think arguably the most embedded war correspondent in U.S. history, you're not there. Why not? That's a minor battlefield compared to the food and the migration issues. I mean, it's a major battlefield if you're there, and it affects world uh, energy, obviously, and it affects uh, the food. I mean, if I were going to design a war that would exacerbate the, the food and energy problems, it would be that war, right? Because, oh, there's always wars around the world. I mean, it's like one, one of the things I learned doing so much combat was never chase battles. I mean, and to me, that's battle chasing. The big story of, of human history at this point, these famines that are clearly building are biblical. And I don't use that word lightly. I mean, this is at this rate, the Bible is going to need a new chapter. Uh, 
I mean, it, it's really that serious. I cannot, I cannot convey clearly enough how serious this is. Well, it strikes me that Ukraine is also one of these, you know, agricultural powerhouse countries. And obviously that agricultural production is dramatically reduced at the moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Ukraine's had numerous famines. One of the things I've learned about famine and my studies of famine is that living in the middle of farmland is not, is not your savior. In fact, it doesn't seem even related to whether or not you're going to end up having food. It, the, the political situation is often more related, right? Uh, for instance, in Henan province during Mao's great famine, there's a, in Henan province was one of the bread baskets of China and ended up with some of the worst famine. And as you know, Ukraine is a massive producer of food, and yet they've had numerous uh, famines just in the last uh, century, right? And, and they could go into another one very shortly. So, you know, you're essentially arguing, though, that none of this really had to happen, that this is all contrived or basically created by humans. I think those who know how to create it can create it because I know how to create it. I know knock out the gas, knock out the energy. You knock out the energy leg and agriculture is going to go. You're going to go into famine. But they're hitting all legs at once and more, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we're clearly, this is clearly contrived. And, and this isn't conspiracy theory. They say it. The World Economic Forum is open about it. They say it in clear words. And what do they say in clear words? Uh, for instance, the, the, about the Great Reset, about, you know, reducing population on Earth. Clearly going to re reduce population on Earth. And when you go into a famine, malnutrition, of course, leads to population size aids, Right. Most people in a famine don't actually die from hunger. They die from disease, right? Because they become weakened and they're eating things they don't normally eat and that sort of thing, traveling to places and they, and they get diseases. Historically, the, the communists have used the greens quite a lot as well. And most of us actually do want the environment to be nice. It's not like we're anti-environment. I spend so much time in the jungles and the deserts and the woods. I, I love to have clean places out there. And, but the menu is tailor-made. For instance, here, as we were talking about the farmers here, they go for, they talk about nitrogen, stickstoff, right? Uh, and over in Germany, it's carbon dioxide, right? So, I mean, it, it, which is just like right over the border, right? So, so, so yeah, the, the greens have been used as a tool, but this is clearly a, a hostile takeover. The, the World Economic Forum doesn't even hide that that's what they're doing. Michael, the, it seems very strange to me that there's a lot of policy that's being implemented right now, like in the midst of what we're talking about, Germany potentially shutting down its last nuclear plants. Like that, that seems like a crazy idea, right? Given the energy reality that you just described. That's just one example. Or in a situation where there's potential food shortage that you would have policy that would make it even harder for the farmers and potentially, you know, kind of drive them, drive them out of their ability to be able to make the food in the first place. Now, you're arguing that this is a result of po deliberate policy, for example, um, in the idea of the globalists or the World Economic Forum. So, and in fact, a lot of famine, as I've learned, I mean, since we, we've talked about this, is comes from basically, you know, policy, not because it really could have been, the reality is it could have been avoided, but somehow it's humans doing something, creating something that will then, you know, perpetuate the food shortages and panic and famine. So, so kind of explain how, how all this works to me. Right. Most famines do actually have a significant human component. There are some famines that only derive from, say, a big drought, uh, especially if you're on some little island somewhere and you're cut off from the world, but mostly those don't happen in little islands anymore because we can help them, right? But these days, almost all famines have some co sort of war component. Uh, for instance, even the potato famine in Ireland, there's a good book on that called Black Potatoes, which I read, and I read a couple more on that famine. Uh, the English were shutting down their ports and our ability to, and uh, the, the Choctaw Indians in, the, in America uh, were, were or United States at that time, it was already the United States, were sending food to the Irish. But the English didn't want it to go through. In Netherlands, there was the 1944-45 hunger winter. They call it the hunger winter, when the Nazis uh, were destroying uh, the, the the ability to transport food to the hungry Dutch. We were trying to 
uh, parachute food in and succeed, su succeeded sometimes. And some of our airplanes were shot down, but we were feeding some people, but not enough. The Swedish were trying to feed the Dutch as well. And then finally, about six months later, we did Operation Market Garden and all those sorts of things, invaded, kicked the Nazis out, and were able to feed the Dutch right here. I found an Encyclopedia Britannica set from 1910-1911 and I went right to the F and looked up the famine and it was a couple of pages uh, you know they, they, they say the, the, the big famines in the world are probably coming to an end because usually there's always enough food it's just over there right we need to get it over here right and and you know they go to make a very sensible uh, argument that now we have faster ships, we have faster and bigger trains, bigger ships, and we have better roads and better ability to get stuff from here to there, right? And by the way, that was even before Haber-Bosch process was out. We're talking 1910, 1911. That didn't really kick off until about 1915 or so in a big way, I think, Haber-Bosch over at uh, Ludwigshafen in Germany at BASF. The authors of that very well-written uh, piece in the Britannica in 1910, 1911, thought that the big famines were probably over and they made a good sound argument because now we can get the food from here to there. Did not take into account that human component. One thing about farmers is they are wed to the land. They are a backbone of culture. Farmers and religion entwined are a backbone of culture. And if you're trying to brainwash people and, 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 and break them and divorce them from the land, you need you got to break the farmers back. They're trying that right here, right? And and these farmers here, many of the farmers here in Netherlands have been here. Like one farmer, seven generations was talking about. He may be the one that has to give up the farm, right? That's all they know. And they're very serious Dutch. They reclaimed this from the sea and made farms out of it, right? This is an extraordinary country. So that's what happened with Stalin in the Ukraine. Mao did that in China, destroy the farmers and replace them. Going back to Ukraine, when Stalin did that in, in the early 30s, 32, 33, and a lot of more, tried to replace those farmers with Russian farmers. It was a replacement strategy. A lot of people think you can just take somebody else and put them on that farm and they'll do great with it. But no, that's an art and a science, right? And also farmers do best in the land that they that their families have passed down to them because they know where the crickets live there. They know exactly how to farm that land, right? And, and, and so Stalin came in, replaced a lot of the Ukrainian farmers with Russians, and they didn't do well, and the famine got even worse. Well, he used the famine to break the farmers back, and then it got out of his control like fires do. Wars and famines and pandemics, they just always get out of hand, right? Pandemics have a life of their own. But when people induce famine, it's like starting a fire. All right, you've started the famine. Now, how do you turn it off? Because famine creates famine. Pandemic creates pandemic and war creates war, right? And so, uh, and so that's why once you get one of these, uh, one of these legs of pan for war, pandemic, famine, war, once you got it going, you can't turn it off. It's, it, any monkey can start a fire, you know, but <laughs> it, takes, it takes mother nature to help you put it out. Explain to me how this uh, triangle... Uh, that you describe works, the pandemic, war, and famine. For instance, in 1793, there was a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia, right? Yellow fever is a man-sized uh, pandemic. That's like up there with tuberculosis. That's up there with smallpox, right? But yellow fever was causing the farmers to leave, right? You know, the farmers, everybody's dying. They're getting bitten by mosquitoes. They have no idea that mosquitoes are doing it. So they leave their farms, right? And so they stop farming. So that's one way, like in the cholera outbreak in London in 1854. People are dying from, from cholera and people start abandoning areas of the city, right? So it causes the economy to collapse. Food shortages can create famine, which kind of sounds common sense, but it's not necessarily. Uh, when you have a food shortage, which can be caused like a personal food shortage, it might just be because I don't have enough money to buy food, right? There might be plenty of food, but hyperinflation or something, unemployment, I just don't have the money to buy food, right? And so people start stealing. They start, they're hungry. They start robbing stores, robbing warehouses, trucks, ships, trains. So now, especially when, well, when you start robbing warehouses and stores, they stop refilling those, right? So you'll create these food deserts and then people start robbing the farmers. 
And now it can actually cause you to go into famine because people are robbing the farmers. And, and so the farmers just stop. They go bankrupt or they just they stop. If you get into a war like's going on in Ukraine now, uh, famine can be created because the, uh, well, first of all, the ships can't go out the way they normally do, right? And as you know, those trains from Ukraine to over to Poland, and, and th they change the gauge on the border at Bialystok, right? And they go from those narrow Russian gauges. The reason they have different widths is because the Russians hate to be invaded by train, so they, they want you to have to stop and transload at places like Bialystok, right? So you can't just load all that grain up and ship it over, and it won't, you can't get it on the trucks like you can on a ship. So you, you have this war going on, and it interrupts the actual, and it interrupts the actual transport of, of the food, right? That's how war can lead to famine. Also, now your army is just out there fighting all the time. Uh, often what determines whether or not a, a country wins or loses a, a series of wars or one war is who's got the most food. Whose army is the, is the best fed, right? That's why your enemy will often attack your food and, and food supplies, which has obviously happened. But so famine and war and pandemic and that human osmotic pressure, they're all woven together. You get one, you're going to get the others. You got that triangle of death and then you got that center pole. It's like a pyramid. That's your human osmotic pressure that causes people to leave, right? And the next thing you know, this changes the demographics, often uh, permanently changes the demographics of countries. Let's go back to pandemic. The reason that the United States even had so many African slaves is because the yellow fever was killing the Irish, who were used as indentured servants, essentially slaves, right? Because yellow fever was killing the, the Irish in large numbers. It wasn't killing the Africans. They started bringing over more African slaves, right? And, and the reason that we got the, uh, a huge reason that we got the yellow, the, we got the, uh, the, the Louisiana, which is massive, Louisiana purchase at such a good price from the French, is because the French were having problems at home. They were having problems in Haiti and other places, yellow fever, right? And the yellow fever was really hurting their ability to, to keep their economy going and keep their other conflicts going. So we got a good deal on the, on the, uh, on, on the, on the Louisiana Purchase. And also, that's why they left Haiti. As somebody who's read 60 books on pandemic, I would argue that the US, U.S. history has been more shaped by pandemic and various disease than war itself. But we always focus on the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, which my grandparents fought in, both of them. My, my family came over way back in the beginning. And when you read a grant, uh, Ulysses S. Grant's autobiography written uh, in conjunction with uh, Samuel Clemens, in the first part of the book, at least the first third or maybe 40 percent, it's like every two or three pages. He's like, yeah, we're going into Mexico and then we hit the cholera. Then we hit the yellow fever. And then we got some other weird fever. We don't know what it was. I remember he talked about going into one town in Texas or maybe it was Mexico. And he said the whole streets were clear. There was some fever going around. So nobody wanted to come out of their house. He said there was one shootout in a street. And that's the only sounds he heard. Every step of the way, they're hitting something that's just taking a big part of their military, but we don't hear about that. We just hear about the Mexican-American War. We hear about the Civil War. We don't realize that disease historically has killed more U.S. soldiers than even artillery. So you've spoken with a number of Dutch farmers. What are they saying to you about what's happening? You know, they're caught in a conundrum here because most of them, maybe all of them, have taken subsidies. And now you see the subsidy trap, right? I mean, most of them actually realize that the World Economic Forum, the globalists, are trying to take their land and why they're trying to do it. We've got printable meats here. I went to a restaurant about a month ago where they actually, they print the meat. And so you can get it in some of the restaurants here, actually. And, uh, and, and it's just amazing. So, you know, talking about making food from crickets and all sorts of things, if you take out the farmers, you're, you're putting, the globalists are putting themselves into a position where they can control food production and distribution all the way to, we're not even going to know what's going into our bodies, right? Bill and Melinda Gates, by the way, have put $600 million into something called Picnic Food Distribution Network here in Netherlands. Three of them have burned down since I've gotten here. And uh, nobody knows why they're burning down. Some people think it's insider 
I'm guessing, I don't know, <laughs> I have no idea, but it's quite strange that three of them have suddenly burned down right when the farmers are becoming more and more angry and the general population is becoming so angry that the farmers are being knocked out of the saddle and the food production is being taken away and the land is being taken away. And then there's a whole other aspect of this called Tri-State City, but we should probably save that for another time, but that's a huge subject as well. Well, so here's what strikes me, okay? Let's just use Netherlands as a microcosm, okay? Because that's where you are, and this is, you know, and obviously that's where you think the action is at. So you have this situation where one, you know, the nitrogen isn't being turned into fertilizer, right? So we're not, we wouldn't be growing as much as we would normally, that's one. Number two, there's, you know, price inflation, okay? So things are getting more expensive. Number three, there's no, uh, there's huge limit, going to be huge limits on the energy available to do anything like run your tractor, for example, and many, many other things, right? So like, in what scenario can these farmers actually win and be, continue doing what they're doing? Well, as a war correspondent, I would say overthrow the government because that's the obvious only way that I see of doing it. Now, of course, just saying that, if this airs while I'm still in the EU, who knows what will happen to me? I don't see how they're going to win with this government. Look what just happened to Sri Lanka. Last time I was in Sri Lanka, uh, there was plenty of food. There was food galore. I mean, there was food everywhere at a nice cheap price. Sri Lanka went down the same route, and the rest is history. We saw the mob swimming in the president's swimming pool and sleeping in his bed, literally. So, so what exactly happened in Sri Lanka? Uh, well, the, the government took the bait and started, made radical changes to the, to the way that agriculture was, uh, was, was, was done in Sri Lanka. And for instance, going green, going organic, which just doesn't work, which is about to happen to the entire world, by the way, as this nitrogen fertilizers isn't there, we're just going to see crop yields go like this. And that's what exactly what happened. And so now not only Sri Lanka, but also Bangladesh. I also went to Bangladesh a few years ago, maybe four years, five, four or five years ago, taking a look around, uh, spent quite a bit of time running around there. It's a very densely populated country. And it, of course, Sri Lanka is off the south of India, right? It's an island. And then Bangladesh is to the northeast of India, right? And they, they board, they're contiguous. They border each other. Bangladesh is collapsing as we speak. Let's go to the other side. Pakistan on the western border is collapsing, if not collapsed at this point. I think we could safely say collapsed. They've had terrible floods. Uh, I mean, that country is essentially, given the global context and that nobody can come to the rescue at this point, China's hoarding food. China seems to possibly having food riots now. Uh, and, 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 and so nobody's going to come to the rescue of Pakistan, right? Afghanistan next to that, where I spent two years, has also got a lot of problems. With the, they always have problems with food. And I spent a year up in Nepal, which is to the north of India, right? They have problems. And I spent a year running around India. India, with all of its neighbors, either already collapsed or collapsing, I'm not sure how India is going to be able to continue to stand on its legs. There's many cultures in India, so it's, you know, you're, you're at peril to make any broad strokes there. But as a broad stroke, <laughs> Indians do tend to store food. They do tend to be preppers. That is a cultural uh, essence. And as, is, as are Chinese, uh, certainly the more, his, more uh, 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 um, historical type Chinese that, that listen to their grandparents, uh, you know, when you talk to Chinese, they've always been concerned about running out of food because famines happen a lot over in Asia, right? And so we could be looking at a massive famine in, in India and uh, China. Imagine the human osmotic pressure. Enormous, enormous, because also we've got roads and railroads and ships and the ability to move around faster than we've ever had before. People can go a very long distance these days in a very short amount of time. I've, I've been warning Thailand. Look, Bangla, if Bangladesh collapses, Bangladesh can be in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It can be in Bangkok, right? Because I've been through Bangladesh, checking it out just for this very reason, checking it out, Burma, which borders Thailand. Perfect roads. So if you've got famine in India and you've got famine in Bangladesh, it will certainly collapse into Myanmar, 
right to Thailand, right, right? They start, this is how, fan, this is also how pandemic spreads, right? So you got a bunch of Indians coming over um, with their own diseases and dragging it through Bangladesh, through Myanmar, over to Thailand, right? Most people don't die from starvation. When their immune systems are compromised, they start dying from diseases. They'll die of the famine fevers, is what they're called, the famine fevers. The famine fevers usually take a few months after serious malnutrition kicks in. People start dying from typhus. They start dying from relapsing fevers. You'll also get other non-famine fevers like cholera always breaks out in famines. You, you always get cholera uh, from because the, the sanitation is bad. Uh, when there's famines, the electricity certainly will go out. Uh, the water will stop flowing. Michael, everything you're describing makes me think of um, pandemic policy resulted in, I think, unarguably the biggest wealth transfer from the poor and middle classes to the elites in the history of the world. Um, it's, it's kind of an unbelievable effect, which, you know, I think more and more people are realizing that happened. A lot of small business just disappeared, basically. Like, people couldn't keep these things going, again, because of these very, very strict shelter-in-place policies in many countries, including the U.S. Everything you're describing is in the context of a couple of years um, of, you know, varied extremely restrictive, economically destructive policy uh, that, you know, the world is still reeling from, never mind everything you're talking about right now, you see? Right. I'll tell you what, uh, pick five random books on famine. I keep telling people just so that I'm not loading the deck, just pick five random books and you'll see how famine basically irradiates an economy. I mean, it really kills an economy at least as completely of, uh, as war does, if not even more completely. We've seen uh, uh, children in the United States have missed a great deal of education in the last couple of years, right? Their chain of, of uh, education has been disrupted. It's even far more so when you get into a famine and people are disrupted and they have to leave, right? And they're, they're moving because you're gonna go where the food is, right? Most famines don't, live, don't last more than about two years, but many do last a lot longer. And they'll reach some magical point, they'll reach a peak, and then they'll finally subside, right? Uh, and, 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 but in, in the interim, economies are completely destroyed. Years of education are lost, and demographics are never the same. Massive wealth redistribution. And this pandemic was used in such a weaponized way that it's, it's clearly we're going straight into famine now. One solution I think that is sort of underlying it is, is simply to restart energy production and all, or start energy production in all these places where it's possible, but it's not being done. Would you say that? Absolutely. The natural gas has to flow. We've got to get these, we've got to get these fertilizer plants going again. But even if suddenly it were all flowing, We've already lost a huge amount of production. So there's been a flash we're about to hear. It's not just a bang. It's going to be a boom. Uh, it, actually, the crop reports in the United States should be out in, what, in a couple of weeks now, right? Uh, the, the, um, um, and, uh, and that will, may have a dramatic effect on our food prices. When people realize how short we are on food, there's, many, there's droughts in serious parts of the United States and northern Mexico. The breweries in northern Mexico just closed. I was just near the Corona Brewery about two months ago because I was tracking migrants. Actually, they happened to walk by the big brewery in northern Mexico. And that, that uh, Mexico produces about $5 billion worth of beer that's exported every year. But due to water shortages, closing those breweries. The people that are nimble and able to move quickly uh, tend to make fortunes. Like you'll see people, in, uh, for instance, in the... Um, in the Hilatomor, uh, you, you would have people making, you know, uh, buying entire grand pianos. That, that was the famine in, in, in uh, Ukraine with just a few potatoes, right? So when people say, oh, that's just small potatoes, I mean, you know, this, this is echoes back to, you know, uh, potatoes being gold in places like the Hilatomor in Ukraine or over in Ireland when the, the terrific terrible 
famines in Ireland, their, their population has never recovered. You know, and we're talking, what, 170 years ago. First of all, it caused a lot of Irish to come to the United States. And, uh, and we're like, uh, welcome to the United States. Here's your rifle and go fight the, and go fight the Confederates, please. I mean, uh, uh, the, the Irish had a hard time there, you know. And, you know, and people were, were really uh, uh, looking down on the Irish, of course. They had been, the famines had ravaged them, not to mention other things. Um, and all of this basically spells a really, really difficult time that's almost unavoidable. Is that what you're saying? I would say unavoidable. And I think it dawned on me in about January or February, uh, certainly by February of 2020. Uh, the, and I, I was publishing it in writing. And right around that time, the, the life you know is probably over and will never return. But I had the advantage at that time of having already read about 40 books on pandemic, right? Uh, as a war correspondent, almost autistic-like study. I track pandemics every morning when I wake up and check my what's going on in the world. I'm like, what's going on with H5N1? What's going on with, you know, <laughs> I'm checking what's going on with typhus. I'm, te- you know, I've read the answers to the test. It's all already written. <laughs> it's already happened over and over and over. And the other side of that coin is that the policy, I think I'm convinced based on the research that I've seen at this point, um, and was actually have been for a while, that the policy implemented to deal with the pandemic was a much greater cost than the actual, you know, pandemic should have just been allowed to run its course normally, which would have been an insane thing to suggest, you know, back at the beginning of 2020, right? People talking about that were, you know, vilified in the most, in most terrible of ways. But now looking in hindsight, yeah. right, I mean, there absolutely the policy was incredibly destructive, right? And so that's, that's different than past pandemics, but does it still function as a pandemic in your definition, really? From somebody who's read 60 books on pandemic, let me put it like this. This pandemic is like this. Yellow fever is like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Smallpox, right? Bubonic plague, but we can settle, we can fix that these days. But, you know, uh, the, but uh, uh, typhus, very serious. Yellow fever has been a huge uh, shaper of the world. And almost nobody seems to know that now, right? There are mass graves all over the United States for yellow fever. Does anybody even know that? Watch this. Look up mass graves, yellow fever. If you're in Tennessee, you'll see, oh, there was a, there's, there's a a huge outbreak of yellow fever in Memphis, right? You know what I mean? Uh, All over Texas, there's mass graves in Florida. But if you ask, I'm from Florida. If you ask Floridians that, they'll be like, what are you even talking about? What's yellow fever, right? Yellow fever, the thing that shaped the United States probably more than the Civil War. Uh, so now, but on the scale of things, I would put this one at like a one. Let's say one being the threshold of, the, is there really something going on without somebody telling me, right? Uh, yellow fever would be like an eight. Let's say 10 would be a Stephen King and almost everybody's dead on earth, right? Our reaction to the fake fire was... We got stuck and trampled each other in the doorway. Look at Trudeau. Look at uh, Biden uh, or Ruta here in, in, uh, in Netherlands or so many others. They're just actors. They're just, you, I, I watched a speech with, with Biden in the, in the background and all these sorts of things and, and putting all of his efforts against MAGA and Republicans, right? Not mentioning anything about China, not mentioning anything about the energy or the fertilizer or the food. It's all... Uh, this, you know, as somebody who I've written three books, but I've written six books. Three of those books are only in J- Japanese. They're only in Japan, but they're only about information war. I've studied information war. The highest form of warfare is information warfare, right? Why did Epoch just step out of the blue and suddenly become massive? Because we're thirsty for accurate information. We're dying from it. What do you do when you get cholera? You get dehydrated. What do you do? You need more water. And what do you, you go right back to the source. Where you got that water from, right? The, the same source that gave you cholera. Jon Snow, the, the father of epidemiology, he made a map of where all the cases were happening, right? This is like a map of the media today. And like, why are they dying? And he went every single place and he's like, finally found out, hey, they're all getting water from that pump. And, and because back then everybody thought the diseases were coming from miasma, right? Miasma, right? The 
terrible air. When you go to India, you'll understand what a miasma is, right? And that's where, the, that's where, that's where we used to think malaria came from miasma, right? That's why the name malaria, bad air, Latin, malaria, miasma, right? And so they all thought it was miasma. And he's like, no, no, it's coming from that pump. And uh, so it's the same. It's the same with the media. When you read this terrible news sources, you go right back to that same source, or you go back to sources that are that are providing that same polluted water. You're never going to get clean water from that source. Just stop paying attention to it. It seems like we've kind of crossed a Rubicon here. It, is it possible to ever go back to how things looked like, let's say, pre-pandemic? No. Uh, we're going into a totally different state and there's no turning back. You know, look at Sri Lanka. They're resisting now a little too late, right? Especially when you go into famine. There's only a certain amount of time that you have while your energy is still high and you're not malnourished yet that you can actually resist. At some point, you're just too weak and they've beaten you. So what do you think is the best case scenario right now for, I, I, I suppose, society at large? Firstly, detach ourselves from the globalists and the World Economic Forum and their influence. And that includes the UN and, and the World Health Organization, uh, greatly reduce the size of the U.S. government and the bureaucracy there, uh, become nationalist. Uh, I never realized I was a nationalist until people kept actually accusing me of it. And then finally, I'm like, actually, you're right. I am a nationalist and, I'm, and, 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 and that's the way I need to be. I am American. And, uh, and Japanese need to be Japanese, right? And, 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 and Polish need to be Polish or they'll just be giving up their sovereignty. That's why Europe is collapsing. They've, they've surrendered their sovereignty to the people in Brussels and the people in Brussels who, wherever they're coming from on this planet, whatever, however they got to the views that they have, uh, are leading us into a global catastrophe. Any final thoughts uh, as we finish up? All of our family lines have been through pandemics and famines and wars and migrations. We all came from somewhere else, right? And, 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 and we've all got these long stories of this, that, and the other, and we're still here. We're survivors, right? And so uh, prepare. Read quickly five books on famine. Just pick five random books, right? Okay, I'll suggest one. Read Red Famine, right? And, and then pick four more at random. And then you'll... you'll understand more of what you need to do to prepare for this because you can get through it no problem if you know what challenges you're going to face and it's all written down old people wrote it all down they didn't write it down for fun they wrote it down so we would read it well michael yan it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again thanks yan it's a very big pleasure to come on thank you all for joining michael yan and me on this episode of american thought leaders i'm your host yanya kellick 